Welcome to Fossils by Firelight, a series of conversations with South Africa's geological legends, where they unearth their discoveries, learnings, memories, interesting stories, and maybe a few tall tales to chronicle our history and inspire the next generation of geological heroes. Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to right, the yeah. second in our Fossils by Firelight series uh, by the GSSA. Um, this one is specifically titled Diamonds Are Forever, hosted at uh, Solid Gold Podcasts, which is the perfect geological setting for some wits gold, um, <laughs> as I usually say. Before um, I introduce uh, my co-host and the various legends, geological heroes that are joining us, um, I just thought I'd break some eyes um, and ask... Um, the four of them, uh, including my co-host, uh, if anyone has seen the latest James Bond movie. The newest one that's come out? Yes. No, no, not no yet. Time to Die? Not yet. Mike Spag, no, no, Spag no. I'm revealing your names, but no. that's fine. That's, no, no? no, no, I haven't seen it. And, nope. No. Um, and John? No, I haven't seen that. Uh, I'll be honest as well. Um, I haven't seen it. Um, but the reason I'm bringing that up, apart from the play on words with the diamonds are forever, it's a nice segue for introducing what we're trying to achieve uh, with these podcasts that we are having. We are trying to inspire the next uh, generation of geological heroes, um, such as yourselves. So in this instant, you would be like the Sean Connery's uh, Roger Moore's um, <laughs> And what we're trying to also capture um, is your stories. So essentially, we're trying to capture like the movies. Um, and you guys have also are one. <laughs> you guys have <Yeah>. also <laughs> won various awards. So you're like uh, got Oscars, but in uh, the geology field. And I'll introduce each and every one of you shortly. But um, that's why it's critical. That's why we've created these podcasts so that we capture these stories, you know, from legends such as yourself. So I'm quite excited. Uh, more so because uh, all the legends around me um, have worked together for so many years as well. So I'm really looking forward to it. But the, just to remind you that that's the, the whole aim, you know, so youngsters get this view of how things were back in the days, you know, uh, when like Diamonds Are Forever and the likes of Sean Connery were, were starring in these. Um, we have a different context, at least I've gotten to watch those. But that's essentially what we trying to do, capture these stories while we can. So thanks again for joining us. I'm quite excited uh, for this one, the, the second one in our series. All right, before I introduce uh, the speakers are around here, all of them, as I've said, they've worked together in various projects over the years. All of them have authored a lot of uh, papers, geological papers, that is. All of them feature in the overview of uh, diamond resources in Africa. Um, so uh, I'm quite looking forward to this. So the other thing as well, and this is a hint to all of them, um, I know I've coerced one of them already to uh, mentor some of these youngsters as well. <laughs> Mike, that's you on that side. Uh, uh, and I hope the others as well do mentor so that, you know, we keep also that knowledge. More importantly, apart from the stories, but get that knowledge and just see how things were back in the days. And it's different, you know. Um, so I guess heading back into why I introduced the Bond theme, I haven't watched it. Um, I was quite excited with some of the older movies and so on and the older stories. But I think probably like technology has, you know, changed how we view things um, lately. So that's why I thought I'd play on the theme uh, and the title. So with that, 
I'll move along now and introduce the various uh, people. And I'll give them an opportunity as well to just tell us a bit about the experience. Um, and then we'll delve into some of these stories and um, some never heard before. Um, typical stories you'd, you'd hear in the firelight. So I'll start with the man I refer to as young man. And uh, he knows this. Um, and it's out of no disrespect that I refer to him as a young man. Uh, it's because he still inspires us after having over 40 years of experience, um, you know, and he's still going strong, trying to discover deposits and trying to find diamonds uh, all over. Uh, and I mean, I've heard I've done my homework is one of the coolest um, and calmest geos, even under extreme pressure, uh, diamond pressures. Um, so, uh, Mike, uh, David, uh, please introduce yourself. <laughs> and just give us a bit of, of background. Thank you. Well, uh, Fiso, thanks very much for um, being so complimentary, calling me uh, one of the youngsters. Um, <laughs> I still feel like that, actually. But <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I've, uh, I think I've, I've been in the diamond business uh, from right from the word go. I, um, I graduated actually in Dublin and Ireland, where I learned a lot about uh, how to drink a good pint of Guinness. Um, and then came to South Africa for for quite interesting reasons, actually. My father was uh, in, the, in the Dutch Navy uh, during the Second World War, and um, he was on a ship between Cape Town and uh, Sri Lanka when he was torpedoed and by a German submarine, and he had to swim ashore at, uh, and came ashore at Port Alfred. And uh, he spent six months in South Africa uh, during that time. And he always told me, man, if you want to go to a great country, you must go to South Africa. So, you know, when I finished university and, and the jobs were scarce and so on, I managed to get a, a job with the Geological Survey in Pretoria as a um, technician in the geophysical department. Now, I, have, I just finished uh, university and my first love at university was playing hockey. So uh, my, my focus was really to, to think what geophysics was at the time when I arrived. I hadn't got a clue. But I spent two years doing geophysics with the geological survey in, uh, in the field. And it was the most fantastic experience that I've ever achieved. That I, I have to admit, I never think myself as a, a specialized geophysicist, but I certainly learned what the power of geophysics was and the usefulness of geophysics. But then I got married, I met somebody in, uh, in Lichtenberg, and, uh, and I looked at the pay slips and I thought, well, this, this is not really going to work. So I managed to get a job with the beers, and I spent the next uh, almost 30 years with, with the beers in various places. And, including uh, Central Africa and, and Southern Africa. Um, and, and I had a fantastic career with, with this company. That's really when I learned all about exploration, prospecting and diamonds and so on. And, and it really is still my first love is to, um, to you know, understand the distribution and, and discovery of, of diamond deposits. I then left the beers and, and spent um, uh, the next couple of years in the DRC, with a junior company. I learned a bit about the junior business. Uh, then I joined a junior company in Botswana. Uh, and after 10 years of doing that, I decided it's time to uh, relax a little bit uh, and uh, spend some time writing up a few things, which I'm, which I'm busy at the moment. So I guess that's, that's putting it in, in, in a nutshell. 
Thanks, uh, Mike. And just to add on that topic of writing, I mean, you've written countless um, mm. research papers. You've even won awards, uh, GSSA awards, Desperatorious, yeah. uh, Jubilee awards, and you are also a professor as well. So what I did forget to mention is all the people around me, including my co-host, are all uh, doctors. And then, yeah, you are also a professor. So so thanks again. But before I move on to the next uh, uh, guest, speaking of Guinness, uh, Mike, um, <laughs> I hear there's a bar named after you at the Beers Bar in Centurion. Is that correct? <laughs> well, <laughs> it certainly wasn't because of the Guinness, I think. But, uh, no, no. I, I'm, <laughs> sure, but... I, I'm, um, I'm not sure, entirely sure about that one, actually. But uh, oh, So my Kimbalitic sources are incorrect. Uh, just hold on, before we move off on that one, there's actually a very prominent plaque in a running club in Pretoria with Mike's name on it. He was found a member there, also in the pub, I might add. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. So maybe that person got it wrong because, yeah, they were at the pub when they were seeing that. But okay. <laughs> Don't worry. I've got a few more uh, things uh, and intel that I've, I've got on all of you. So let me move on then. Thanks, Mike. Uh, oh, young gosh. man, as I referred to you. Uh, the next uh, uh, guest is uh, Dr. John Ward, uh, who's also got over 40 years experience. I'll, I'll give you a chance shortly to just tell us a bit more about that. Uh, but he's also, you know, recipient of various awards. Um, there's the Heno Martin Medal, the Geological Society of Namibia, I think. Uh, you spend quite a lot of time there and you've contributed uh, quite a lot to, you know, Namibia uh, geology. And there's the Oliver Davis as well, uh, perhaps you'll touch on a bit later, um, a specialist on placid deposits, worked in all sorts of places, Angola, Guinea, I think you've been to 17 African countries from what I hear. Uh, we'll, we'll delve into some of those experiences, but yeah, please just give us a brief, uh, Dr. John Ward, thank you. Oh, thanks very much, Fisa. A lot of that experience uh, I have to actually thank Mike for, because he actually hauled me out in Namibia. Uh, back in the in the late 80s to uh, to join them on the in the in the diamond sphere, and at that time I was like Mike. I had a survey background, and uh, had worked. You also after a while in the survey, you also look at the paycheck to see where it's going to get you, and uh, but but not just that. I had fantastic experiences in Namibia. It's a great teaching country, and it also has some very good economics. You know the uranium and the and the diamonds there in particular. And, and um, I got into it because I was working on, on the Aeolian, the, the windblown deposits. And uh, it was just interesting that tagging along at the feeder streams to most of the Aeolian inputs out of the Atlantic Ocean were, were diamonds. And Mike and I got together on the Sasqua Council, the Quaternary uh, Association in South Africa. And, and through that, he, he in, introduced and brought me across to De Beers, who I had really fantastic time learning about the... Kimberlite exploration, and then got moved to the west coast, down at what was CDM in those days, which is now NAMDEP, and uh, we were part of a, a very exciting time of working in mature environments and extending life of the mines. So that was great, and then I left and went into the junior sphere for a couple of years, mostly in Central Africa as well, and then uh, quite a few years I've been out there also, still in, in Central Africa and, uh, and Lesotho actually, carrying on there, really enjoying the, the, the diamond time. And that's where Tanya and Spags, you know, came came onto the radar. We met up with them in, in those years, and it's been really a fantastic trip through an amazing, you know, amazing learning, putting putting scientific rigor into a lot of the exploration and into the and even into the production facilities that I've had the good fortune of working in. 
has been, been really absolutely great. Thanks, uh, John. Um, speaking of which, um, Spags, uh, Renato, uh, Spagari, sorry. Um, I, 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 I always thought I practiced this so many times, but I knew when the moment would come, I'd get it wrong. My apologies. That's why but we, call him, that's Spags. Why we call him Spags. <laughs> exactly. Spags. Imagine for me in Africa. But yeah, I mean, um, you know, people I was talking to, they were saying, you know, you're the epitome of like, you know, the exploration geologists. You've got the whole gear and your whole drive. Um, and yourself, you've got over 30 years experience, you know, deposits, uh, place uh, uh, largely West, Central, Southern Africa, PhDs in uh, marine deposits. You've worked in all sorts of interesting places um, like Sierra Leone and, and the like. So please give us a, a brief on your experience, aspects. Thank you. Well, thank you. But firstly, um, I don't blame you for getting my name wrong. I mean, um, uh, every, everybody, even the poor farmers in the 80, Afrikaans who can't speak English also struggle. So, I mean, it's a, and, and it's Spajari. And, um, and the first name, it's, it's very dependent on whether you English speaking, then you just say Renato. And, uh, if you're Afrikaans, it's, uh, uh Renato. <laughs> and if you did, and if you Italian is Renato, so I mean, eventually, thank goodness, we were called Spags. Um, yeah, I, I started my career. <laughs> I, I started my career in the early eighties, and the funny enough thing was that I wasn't interested in geology. I just wanted to get to the field. Um, tried my luck to get into nature conservation and uh, that was unsuccessful and I saw this ad in the newspaper geological field assistant and I said great it says field it must be in the field and so I just enjoyed the field life and that's what it was all about until somebody entered into my <laughs> inner circle and that and that man is called uh, uh, David now, he was just as young <laughs> because I have known David since 1983, I think it is. Just with David being around, explaining the geological sort of settings and that, that drew me in to a geological interest and I was astounded. So I blame Mike for having become a geologist. It's all his fault. And in fact, both Mike and John Ward have been my managers and I blame both of them for looking like what I am today. So, um, so anyway, so from my Kimberley's days, I've moved to Namibia. I followed these guys. You wouldn't believe this. I actually followed these guys around. And so I've been in Namibia with John. We were working on a lot of projects. Uh, then I went to Central Africa. I was working for De Beers for roughly almost 25 years and decided to also go as what John and Mike did, the junior route. And so I spent a lot of time in, in Central Africa, West Africa, etc. But it has been an, an amazing ride. And today I've decided to um, take some time off, which I like to call it a long sabbatical to the horror of my poor wife. <laughs> but I think she's managing actually. Um, and uh, so both Mike and uh, myself, um, we know we're trying to put papers together and do our little hobbies and all this net on the geologies here. Uh, so that's about it. 
thanks, uh, Spagiari. I've got it right now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> um, I mean, before I move on, you, I mean, as, as you mentioned, the three of you worked in numerous countries together, uh, including, you know, some with um, the co-host who I'll introduce shortly, but countries such as including Israel and, you know, not, not just in Africa. So let me move on. Now that we've done the, the, the rough diamonds, um, let's uh, go to the cut diamond and um, the rose amongst the thorns. Um, Tanya gave me the idea around the whole Marilyn Monroe wild, forgotten that uh, with the word play. Um, diamonds are a girl's best friend. So last but not least, uh, the co-host uh, who is also a diamond specialist um, you know, uh, largely also in alluvial diamonds and has been all over um, uh, the world and Africa, over 30 years experience. Uh, I must also mention the current uh, president of the Geological Society, uh, past chair of the SSC. Um, I'll, I'll stop there. There's quite a lot um, of achievements uh, there, um, and she's even worked on things like emeralds. But yes, uh, uh, today uh, she she is in her own right a diamond uh, legend as well, uh, Dr. Tanya Marshall. Please give us a brief on on your experience. Thank you. Well, I came into to diamonds also the long way round. I was doing my um, MSc at at Wits at the Economic Geology Research Unit. And many of you will remember Des Pretorius, <laughs> who was my, my professor and, and mentor. And we were working on morphotectonics, relationship between structural deposits and land surfaces. And halfway through that, he suggested that, okay, now I've finished that and I'm moving on to my PhD, I should go and look at some alluvial diamonds. Well, that sounded great, but... I knew nothing about alluvial diamonds. <laughs> so Des, who knew everybody and everything, said, no problem. Drive down to the, uh, the Orange River to Barclay West, and there you will meet a man named Mike DeWitt, and he will take you around <laughs> the field. <laughs> Which he promptly did and engendered a, uh, an interest in, in the alluvial gravels down there. And uh, sorry, Tonya, can I interrupt? Do you remember we got a puncture actually during that trip? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. In my Peugeot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then from there, I sort of started wandering down the, the Orange River down towards the, the West Coast, where another geologist named John Ward <laughs> took me around the Namdev deposits. <laughs> and... Uh, with an interest in, in that, I wandered up and down Africa looking at various types of alluvial deposits, gold, emerald, both alluvial and hard rock, and then also the, the sapphires in, in Kenya. It's great having um, a look at precious stones. I mean, you can put a month's production in your pocket and walk out of the country. <laughs> when it goes to hell in a basket, you can't really take a month's production of copper or iron ore with you. <laughs> <laughs> and in, in between doing consulting, running across Spags when you were working up in um, the Cameroon, the mm. information for, for various lectures and, and all of that. Sorry, Tanya, to interrupt, but do you know, do you actually realize I met you in the 80s? <laughs> yes, I, I'm just trying to remember where <laughs> I it <took> was. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I, I had to take you to the De Beers, then was the dairy farm. Sorry, I'm interrupting you, but anyway, I, know, I had to take you to the De Beers, 
dairy farm conference room where we sat down and chatted and waited for Mike DeWitt. I think it was you <laughs> and some other body. <laughs> oh, yes. So that was in That's the right. 80s. Yeah, yeah. going way back. <laughs> there we go. Sorry. <laughs> and then I've done a, a spot of lecturing, got involved in um, the, the Sam Code standards, trying to drag alluvial diamond operators kicking and screaming into the 21st century <laughs> and just keeping going on, on odds and ends. Thank you, Sofiso. Thanks, uh, Tanya. I'll, I'll bring you in. I'll, I'll just um, set the scene um, with some of the, the themes we're going to um, talk around. Uh, one word that resonated from John was was paycheck. So I'll start again with <laughs> with Mike. Just around, you know, the early diamond exploration days. Um, so we just want to get a feel around that. Some of the untold stories, you know, some maybe not so PC, politically correct. But but one thing around paycheck, Mike, I I, I saw yours was two hundred and twenty when you first started. So can you just give us some glimpses of how things were back in those days? Uh, apart from yeah, that um, uh, two twenty, uh, including uh, field allowance, I, I think you said. Yeah, well, um, it was quite easy because we lived in a caravan, and as a single guy, that was fine. You know, you didn't have any expenses on terms of electricity or, or water. We didn't have generators actually. We just had these little Coleman lamps that you have to fill with paraffin, uh, which sometimes worked and sometimes didn't work. <laughs> But besides that, you, you didn't have really any, any expenses. Um, life was good. You could buy your meat from the local farmer. In Bakerville, there was a guy who used to r drive around in his bucky and then shoot his cattle. Uh, so you had these very high energetic um, carcasses that were so <laughs> tough to eat that you could hardly you break your teeth on it. But anyway, it was, was, was quite cheap to live on. And um, I was living... In, in Bakerville with a guy called Edgar Stettler, who's a, a top geophysicist. And we used to live on 10 rand a week for three meals a day. And now uh, three meals, I have to say what these meals are. Morning was, uh, was a bit of slop up with a bit of milk. Uh, lunch was um, a sandwich with sardines and with onions, chopped onions. And it was always sardines and onions for three years I ate that. So I can't stand the taste of sardines. And, and the evening meals was normally a very tough piece of chop with a couple of potatoes. But you could, you could live on that until you got married and then things obviously <laughs> changed and, and in that time I was even able to save enough to buy my first vehicle a, a Beetle so it was tough but it was doable and you didn't have any worries um, that only started when you expanding your family and so on so yeah the, and, and the survey was first good with that they uh, they provided you with an S&T which was tax-free um, so, you know, you were able to put a few rands on the side and still have a few beers on Friday evening or Saturday evening or whatever. Thanks, Mike. Uh, we'll, I'll come back to you on that one around, you know, some of the lessons learned and, um, you know, some of the, the qualities that you, 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 you gained from those experiences. Um, I'm going to um, come across um, to, to John again. I heard um, you had a June baggie in Mauritania that uh, you were using um, for exploration. But yeah, it seems you were having so much fun. But please give us, shed some light on <laughs> how fun it was back in those days. <laughs> oh, well, now, that was an interesting one, that because 
Uh, it was an exploration in the actual dune field to the, uh, to the north, which is a, a tongue of very fine sand that comes out of the Sahara and heads towards the Atlantic in those vicious winds. So the sand is very fine, and uh, we needed to to follow up on it's right on the edge of the Rikibat Craton. So we were looking to follow up on some some targets that had been flown, some AMAC targets, and we needed to do some groundwork on it on them. And the big trick was to get in there and um, do mag and gravity. So these dune fields were quite uh, famous for one thing, is that the Paris Dakar rally couldn't get over them. Couldn't get through. <laughs> so they so they drove around, but I suppose us being <laughs> being geos, we're told you have to go there, you've got to go there. And I was just learning how to use a, a GPS as well in those days, so that was quite interesting. So we went to the, the Uri lads in in the Kus area of Namibia and we said, Look, we need we need a really short vehicle. We, we need a two point two petrol engine, we need a bit of power <laughs> and speed and uh, it's gotta be as long as the two prop shafts, not allowed to be any longer. So fitted in that, and the guys did. In fact, they fitted in so well that when we brought the vehicle back to Mauritania, we could never get a road with it in South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a bit of a problem. But the best part about it is that, uh, so now I had two young lads with me, Bjorn Halverman, and he's a geophysicist, and uh, he's going to do the work, and James Alexander, a geo, and I said to the boys, look, they, they, when they saw this vehicle, because it really was, it was aluminium and doors came off and all sorts of things happened with it. It was meant to get over the dunes, so... So I uh, said to him, look, I'm sorry, lads, you're not allowed to drive this thing. I said, how Murphy is. You're not allowed to drive this thing until we finish the survey. I'm going to drive it, and you guys get can just wait until we finished. And, of course, they were duly, they just want to drive it. This thing was amazing. You could drive absolute faces with it. Eh? So that's 30, <laughs> 30 degrees, 28 degrees. We get out, and uh, so Bjorn and I go out to the first point for the, for the uh, gravity survey. We got our kit loaded, doors off, as light as we can be. I say to him, don't, I'm going to drive. Oh, you can see. Uh, and just as Murphy would have it. The very first interdune, <laughs> the maybe the interdunes are actually very polite. They don't have, <laughs> they don't have holes and dunes and slip faces in them. The Sahara one's a little bit more tricky. It's white sand, so you don't always see the, see the colour difference too well. The sun was up at about 9 o'clock in the morning. By then, there were no shadows. And right in the middle of the interdune was a hole with a slip face. And I went right over it. <laughs> it, took, it took us eight hours to get out. And I must say, I, I, had to, I had to eat humble pie with the boys. Clara was, Mike sent me specially there because I was supposed to know how to drive in dunes. So that one caught me. <laughs> All right. And um, the, there was a point we were supposed to go to, to Guinea. I, I went a couple of years ago. And I mean, um, from the time you used to go, um, I'm sure there's been a lot of change, but it literally took me eight hours to get to where I was going, you know, just driving over two days, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm lying. So I can imagine, I can only imagine how those were. But I'll, I'll come back to that. Before I, I, I go to Spags around, you know, navigating around the Kasai, I know he's done a lot of work in the DRC. He can tell us a bit about that. And, and then I move on to time. Before I move on from you, John, I heard before you actually started uh, Diamond Exploration, Angola, which is, I think, a country you, you, you love quite a lot because you, you've, over your, your career, you've gone there many times. It sounds like I've heard you started at a game reserve. And so please tell us a bit about that, but also um, around the time you were caught in the crossfire in the anthills. I've done oh. my homework. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's two different time periods there. Okay. <laughs> so one was, I took geology as a, as a, as a fill and full subject, because uh, I was into, a bit like Spags and his snakes, you know, he was into snakes, so he got sort of snared along the way by rocks, you know. <laughs> So I was into sort of plants and animals and I got snared by rocks because I didn't move quite as fast. And I guess 
for spags, well, they don't bite as much. Huh? <laughs> but, but anyway, we'll get to that one with our spags as well. But, uh, but no, it was, I, I was very lucky. I was very fortunate. I was given an opportunity in 73 to work for the Department of Fauna in, in Angola. And uh, I worked in, as a fact student in several of their game reserves. And during that, uh, it was now early 70s, 73, 74, and it was the base metal boom. It was a time of our first podcast talked about the, the mining houses and what was put into exploration back then. It really sort of touches on, on the changes that we've had in the last decades. And the, the only other Strangeros in the area close to where I was working were the JCI Gears. And uh, so we had Christmas with them. Mm. And I must say, uh, you know, turkey is good if you feed it rum first. And <laughs> but, but, How did um, the turkey feel about that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, I guess it was the days before the right, so. <laughs> oh, then, oh, then, then, late, then later on, and in, 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 in obviously the war came in 75, we came back in periods of unrest and the ITM boys and all that, and then Mike asked me to go back with them in 96 and, and uh, I then spent a few years going back from, from Namdev and yeah, one of them, the guys got themselves confused with what was happening at the diggings that I was sent to and um, they were all the soldiers from the same side, should we say but some were in civvies and some were not so there was a bit of altercation so the best place to be in the altercation is behind the anthill so that was like that was in the late nineties. Eh? Yeah. No, no, that's interesting. Thanks, yeah. uh, uh, John. Um, okay, uh, Spags. I'm, I'm going to just tr- okay. chip, chip in there, Sophie. So talking about hiding behind the uh, the anthills, I was uh, working up in the Central African Republic, and we were also out in the middle of of nowhere doing a, a, a survey looking for for diamonds, and suddenly the the presidential guard that was there to protect us against the rebels saw a monkey in the trees. And so they wanted monkey for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) So out with the (laughs) AK-47. And the safest place to be was behind the monkey, actually. (laughs) 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 Daniel, please carry on with some of your experiences that you had before we move on to Spags. That's, yeah, I mean, um, some of the things you encountered, and especially in the early days, you know. Uh, if you could just yeah, <laughs> share some stories there. Just also that John was saying in the in Angola, we were up in the north east, Linda North somewhere, mm-hmm. as everybody was in those days. And we were having dinner in our house in the, the village and the local camp commander was, was there with us, him and his guys. And we were having our dinner and in the background you hear some AK-47 fire. Anyway, the commander says, don't worry, it's just the guys being excited. Okay, you're not worried? I'm not worried. Have another <laughs> sip of wine. Very bad Portuguese wine. Anyway, a little bit later into the, the meal, the fire started getting a little bit more and louder. And we looked at him and he said... It's just the boys being excited. You're not worried? I'm not worried. Another sip of bad Portuguese wine. <laughs> but later, there was heavier fire going on. Still in the distance, we looked at him. He called one of his lackeys from over there and whispered in his ear. 
No, don't worry, he says. It's just the guys being excited. They're, they're having a party there. You're not worried? I'm not worried. Another sip of bad Portuguese wine. <laughs> then we started getting incoming fire into the village that we were staying in. Gosh. Morto was coming in. <laughs> and he said, perhaps we'd better take refuge. So we grab a couple of bottles of this very bad Portuguese wine and head off to the, the bomb shelter which in our case was an upturned uh, bath, one of these old uh, cast iron um, <laughs> ball and claw bathtubs. And we spent the rest of the evening under that with the very bad Portuguese wine. Uh, before I, I move on to Spags, um, it, when I was in Guinea, uh, uh, John, and you would know, I was in, I went to the Ken Ken area. So firstly, oh, yeah. um, the flights were like the milk run. So like numerous stops, it took us, over seven days, we're only on site for one and a half days. So it's the uh, the flights, which is like the milk run. And then when you get to the capital, driving all the way there, um, like you said, Tanya, earlier, tire bursts, we had numerous ones. And there we are sitting outside with our armed guy because you need to travel <laughs> with an armed guy, right? So, so anyway, that, that's quite a, you know, uh, it was quite an experience. But I can imagine how it was back in the days. Um, let me go over to you uh, over there, Spags. Um, the Kasai, how was it um, navigating around there? You've done quite a lot of work there, uh, DRC, uh, and you can share any other experiences similar to that. Well, firstly, before we head into DR Conga and talking about hiding behind termites, <laughs> I remember once with John Ward, I, you, you'll notice there's a common denominator here. So yeah. yeah. I remember traveling with him to Porfada. Uh, in fact, we were traveling towards Oranumun and we were going through Porfada. And John, and I hope he's still working on this, had this theory about polished surfaces. And um, as we were driving, he said, look, 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 stop. And we screeched to a whole polished surface there. It must be. It must be a glacial surface. And we climb over this fence, and, um, and he's busy looking around, and I'm looking around, and we hear this bucket driving past at a great pace. And then suddenly there's a screech of tires. So I went and hid in a gully because I knew there's something going to happen here. All of a sudden, we heard this whining of a reversing vehicle, Wah, reversing all the way back. And I just peeped over this gully and I saw this humongous farmer walking towards John. And, um, and he With said nine to him, millimeter, no doubt. I think I think his fist would be stronger than nine millimeters. <laughs> And he looked at John, he said, you come here. And I thought, oh, dear, here we go. <laughs> and he said to John, what are you doing on my farm? And all John could respond was, oh, is it your farm? <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to hear... I'm going to hear the sound of a very, very hard slap. <laughs> and, um, and anyway, so John, you know, he's very good at sort of wriggling himself out of tight situations, and he managed this one very well. So that I just thought about hiding behind termite mounds. This was hiding in a gully. The Kasai, yeah, DRC was, was very interesting. I mean, and again, the common denominator, Devit, is responsible for everything. <laughs> when I visited on a recce trip with John, and Hilke Jelsma and everybody. And we drove into Chikapa and we camped at other, it was uh, Southern Era's camp then. I said to myself, 
oh my gosh, I do not ever, ever want to ever be in this place again. And of course, you can imagine where I've landed up <laughs> to spend my time in Jakarta and on the instructions of David and John Ward. So with the beers in Jakarta, uh, we managed to find a campsite, which was not far from the airport and was probably in the wrong position, I have to admit. Uh, it was next to the Russian pilots, uh, a, a large, we camped it off with fence. And I lived in a tent and a very, very rudimentary camp with palm fronds over a wooden structure as my office, etc., etc. And like Mike DeWitt in his early years, I lived off rice and bully beef because <laughs> uh, he couldn't get much in Chikapa. And so it was bully beef and rice in the morning and rice and bully beef in the afternoon and then pasta and bully beef. And so there was all this assortment of bully beef uh, <laughs> meals. And uh, I, I must admit, John, I still, uh, uh, you and Mike David, I still curse you for those days. And, um, look and, how healthy uh, you look, uh, man. And obviously... Yeah, and and obviously living next door to Russians, uh, all that bully beef went down with vodkas, and um, and great. and the worst was that having to know that to fly with the Russians, and that's what we did. We flew in these 1948 biplanes called AM2s, Antonovs, and um, you know the plane was actually made out of canvas, and. Um, realizing that hang on my russian pilot actually had his swigs of vodka in the morning to fly us out it was a little bit unsettling but he assured us that this thing crashes at 60 kilometers per hour it's like a parachute <laughs> and that's what he called the parachute <laughs> i'll never forget my flight from kananga to chikapa where we had to before we set the camp out I forget the Belgian logistics guy's name, Eric. So I flew with Eric. Eric somehow managed to coax in a Belgian pilot who had this small little aeroplane, and it was a twin prop. And off we flew. And flying through these huge clouds with a small plane wasn't the best of flights that I've experienced. And so we landed in Chukapa, and we saw, got the camp sorted out, etc. And then we went back in the plane, and all the Russian pilots, I'll never forget this, they were all standing on the edge of the, um, of the runway, uh, the apron where the plane was parked, and the Belgian guy said, all right, right propeller, and brrrr, and off it went. I said, good, left propeller, and it went brrr, chok, 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 pop, 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 and it stopped. <laughs> and now I'm looking, and the Russian pilots all got this huge smile on their face, and he said, right, left propeller, Chuck, 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 chuck. Poof, big black smoke. I thought, oh, goodness me. <laughs> then the Belgian pilot climbed out, took out a spanner, and started whacking away at the engine. <laughs> then, when you see a Russian pilot putting his hands to his head saying, oh my gosh, then you know 
<laughs> something is going to happen. <laughs> it was it was an uneventful flight, a very frightened one, but it was uneventful. <laughs> no, great. And while on those flights, I just want to uh, go again to to John. I heard you like these World War Two. Was it one of these World War Two um, planes? The same in two ones. Yeah, Spanx was on. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. He landed many hours on that. Yeah, yeah. With a very Quite good the miles. Very good pilot called Vladimir Mirzin. <laughs> but we might add, Spags's rudimentary camp had only one entrance to it in Chicago. The number of Saturday nights that he couldn't find that rudimentary entrance <laughs> were actually quite, quite numerous. <laughs> But the, the yeah. Russian pilots all over the place are pretty much the the, the same. Yeah. Also on one of these trips up to, to Angola, we're flying out to, to site in the standard Antonov with the, the standard drunk Russian pilots. And in in the Antonov in the back, there was this truck. Just no problem, because they take trucks backwards and forwards, no problem. Anyway, as we come into, into land... Just as we hit the, the runway, the back door opens and they loose the chains and they chuck the, uh, the truck out the back. <laughs> okay. Uh, why did we do that? No, the tank was full of fuel and we didn't want it to explode inside the aeroplane. <laughs> there had been a shortage of fuel out on site and so they didn't have enough fuel there. So that, that's all about kill two birds with one stone, take the truck and fill up the tanks and the f- spare tanks with, with fuel, and then they'll have fuel on site. Gosh. They had a way about them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had, we had some West Coast drivers. Yeah. Spags, if I could just remind, remember Etienne, and the boys the first time they were coming oh, into gosh. the Congo, and it was wet season, and, and uh, we had these little strips that we landed on. There's one called Diboko, which is a bit of a downhill strip. <laughs> anyway... Oh, the same Vladimir Mirza was bringing the lads out to the camp and uh, he hit a wet patch. So he, he slipped off the runway, tilted the, tilted into the grass and bent the wing. And as Pax says, you know, if, you, if the Russians were worried about that, that, that engine being hit, there was nothing for Vladimir. He just got out with a four-pound hammer and straightened the wing and all the rest of Those poor South Africans sitting in that plane, they didn't know what was happening. They were pretty shaken lads when they got to camp. <laughs> Mike, were you on that field trip in in Canada when the the, the, the pilot came in from uh, the, that De Beers project? We sort of landed, but during the the flight there had been the um, a lot of turbulence and all the luggage had moved. And as we taxied into the the apron to stop, the whole plane sort of lifted up and <laughs> fell over backwards, <laughs> and it sort of landed up on its tail. <laughs> climb out this thing at 45 <laughs> degrees and the next morning we drove past and here's the co-pilot who was responsible for this he'd been demoted to cleaning the plane <laughs> <laughs> sounds like your um, uh, russian yeah. pilots had the spirit uh, the vodka <laughs> so although you know people don't get my name r- right neither did the russians <laughs> they used to shout over the fence they used to shout over the fence, hey, Italiano, come and have a... <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, John, and you'll probably figure out who my source was. Apparently, you missed a plane crash by like an hour at some point. Yes, and now yeah. you know who my source was. Yes. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, look, some, some, sometimes things are not good yeah. and sometimes things are bad. That's sure, very sure. sad. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know what? 
Yeah. No, I'm so glad you are here. So and we can was, we can so tell so your story, was, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so that, sorry on that. Yeah. Yeah. Now that was in Gola, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. They, they, we were supposed to fly out on a Friday morning. They decided to fly a guy out who was sick with, with malaria. Yeah. Uh, yes. Thursday night, and they just didn't make it back to mm. back to Luanda. And that that I think is one of the whole things about working up there. I mean, that everybody around the table here will, will will appreciate when you get into those planes. If they're not the slow-flying A and twos, as far as I'll value me, absolutely convinced you never hit the ground more than 60k an hour. And Spags will, will remember he he actually landed that plane going backwards in in the storm because wow. those storm fronts are absolutely mm. vicious. Those tropical storms, I mean, the high felt has big storms, but my goodness, they get they get amplified. They go on steroids up there, and we saw that you know in 2012 in that United Nations plane with 34 and then came in. He didn't. You talk about old hands, he was a young lad. He said, no, no, he's got everything under control. And the SAA boys are waiting at the back and everybody else is waiting up, up top there for the storm to pass. And when he came in, the, that, uh, mm. the sheer front took him out, you know. And, uh, and I think those are the things you, you, have, sure. to re- you have to realise out there. And I think that's also one of the things, you know, you, you just take for granted, I'm sure Mike and Spags telling you, we all do. When you're out there, you just take for granted mm. you're going to come back. I mean, yeah. you never, ever doubt that something isn't going to happen. You're going to have a couple of flat tyres. You yeah. might have to stuff a tyre with a bit of grass. Yeah, whatever it is. Eh? But you never think that you, you're never not, not going to come, come back. back. Yeah. Now, John, you mentioned malaria as well, because obviously, I mean, I, I've been to the DRC and, you know, guys are like drinking quinine. I had my <laughs> melanoma or whatever, prophylaxis and so on. I mean, that, does everyone, anyone have uh, interesting malaria stories or, or cases? Well, I'm allergic to chloroquine. So I never, was never able to take um, anti-malarials. And again, up in Angola, we were staying at one of the United Nations camps. And the, the doctor, we were chatting about how they deal with their long-term people in the tropics. And he had a wonderful solution, and I have used it every day since I met him. Drink lots of tonic water during the day. Fortunately, I like tonic water. (laughs) So you drink as much as you can, and every evening you chase it down with three shots of preferably a white spirit, but whiskey will do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) GNT. (laughs) And it works. I haven't haven't got malaria ever. All right. I've got to tell a malaria story here because Spags didn't tell you that his interest in the field in early years was snakes. eh? So so he has buddy... He had snakes stacked in that house of his in Kimberley enough to, and every puffhead liked him, but they looked at you and you could see they didn't like you. But anyway, so in the days when we were still travelling well and long before this bloody COVID bug, Spags was in the camp on his own, virtually, and uh, I was just about to get on the plane to Australia. And he phones me, he says, Yes, John, I've been bitten by snakes. So I'm in the queue getting on. I said, it after, Spags, what the bloody hell are you working, paying with snakes for? He just, just. He says, no, man, I'm very sick. I got malaria. I got outside to cotch it. I put my hand on the door and the snake bit me. And give Spags his due. He got on the internet and he it was a, Spags was a bloke in America eh, that identified the snake for you. Yeah, it, yeah. it, it was a herpetologist here yeah, <laughs> in America who identified the snake. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, a, this is the funny thing is, is that because in those young days I would be going catching snakes, yeah. everybody assumed you bugger, you've been catching snakes and you yeah. got bitter. And this is the only time where I actually wasn't. <laughs> uh, I was <laughs> um, 
Yeah, but that was a tricky one because if it had been a really poisonous snake, it was actually going to be difficult getting spags out. We had a remote camp in Sambula. Yeah. We had a caravan available to us then, but it was touch and go. Afternoon, they spags out where they could get in and time. Yeah, no, we had a thunderstorm. Also a thunderstorm, in, so yeah, yeah. yeah it and I was about to ask, I mean, spags with your lack of snakes, you must have designed <laughs> the snake charter that we see in many exploration <laughs> camps. I've been in one such in Botswana where we had, oh, go and identify but you know, in like our African culture, um, you know, unfortunately, you see a snake, it's dangerous to us. Uh, so you see it, you, you know, get rid of it in inverted commas. And I'm sure you've heard the story of the person who they gave a carton of milk because a spitting cobra spat into his eyes and he actually mm. drank it, not put it in his <laughs> eyes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens in exploration camps out there. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm going to circle yeah. back to Mike now. So I, I just want to understand some highlights in your careers. Um, Mike, I know, for example, you know, uh, Botswana, you love quite a lot. You, you still do quite a lot of work. You were there for the um, 50th anniversary of like Orapa. You were leading the field trips. And as the speakers and, and the coasters has said here, uh, you are always the culprit for showing people around, you know. But, I mean, wh what are some of the highlights in, in your careers? And also linked to that, what experiences in the early diamond exploration, what they, you know, taught you um, that you now uh, use currently? Okay, before, before I do that, actually, I just, I just wanted to share you an experience that I had in 1996. Because that was a time when, when Angola was just starting up and um, Unita was still fighting in, in, uh, in the Lundas. So it was very hard to get there. You had to fly in and and spiral down to Sarimo Airport and so on. And we were just starting to take a first stream samples, and we were trying to identify where where the landmines were lying and so on. So it was a tough time. But then we got a call uh, from Kinshasa asking if we if I wouldn't come to uh, see uh, Suseka Mobutu because he was uh, uh, he had a, wow. a, a a city that he built in northern north uh, western part of the DRC in Gabalito and there were diamond diggings going on around the town and he was concerned about this so he had contacted the De Beers people in Kinshasa who had been there for years buying diamonds and so on but no they then phoned me and said look I must come up and, uh, and meet with uh, Mobutu and, uh, and see what the problem is so I went up to Kinshasa and we flew up to Gabalito and we were met at this airport and this airport was built uh, with an airstrip that could take the Concorde so that he could actually fly out in and out with using the Concorde. Anyway, so we, wow. this was quite close to the border of the CAR. Um, so we had lunch with, uh, with Mobutu and it was myself with the, uh, the Beers representative, uh, Nick Davenport in, in, the, in the DRC with the Minister of Mines of the DRC and Mobutu himself. And, and we were having lunch uh, in this enormous uh, palace that he had built there with uh, waiters with white gloves and all that, and wines and what have you. And he was just sitting at, at the side of the table. He had a television set next to him. And he had a whole series of channels in this television. It was either Donald Duck or it was Goofy or whatever. So he was watching. He wasn't really interested in the conversation that we were having. But anyway, we decided that, uh, he said, well, what do we need to do to sort out this problem? Um, I said, well, well, we'll have to go on the ground and, and he would supply some vehicles. 
And then it would be nice to get a helicopter and fly over the area and, and get an idea of what it all looked like. He said, that's fine. You can use one of my 1950 Yellowettes that are standing at the airfield. <laughs> there were two Yellowettes, actually both 1950s. The one was used for spares for the other one. So anyway, there was a one that was still flyable. And, and, and he, it was Curtis' uh, lunch. And the following day, we went to the airport and uh, got onto this uh, onto the silhouette, and it takes six, pe six people, three in the front and three in the back. The three in the front was the pilot who was, uh, was fine, and then there was a co-pilot who was uh, quite ill from malaria, and then there was a, a mechanic who had a, a bag with spanners and screwdrivers and, uh, and so on that uh, sat in the front, and there was myself and Tender Rodega at the back. He was a Congolese geologist that worked for the Beers in, in, for many years, and he's still uh, in, living in Botswana, and, and, a, and an armed guard. So we took off in the helicopter, and we flew off, and they took the doors off so we could take nice photographs and what have you. And uh, we're about a half an hour down the flight, about probably 100 kilometers from uh, Gabalito, and suddenly the right led, the right leds started and the alarm system started going off and everything going off. And now you're flying over just carpet of forest. So the pilot said, no, we've got to put this thing down. We're going to crash. We have to put it down. Anyway, so then there was, a, there was a little village. So we managed to get to the village and he, he crash landed in the, in the marketplace in the village. And uh, shoot, we all got out sweating like mad and what have you. And um, the mechanic started taking out his bag and his spanners. He started hitting this thing and taking this thing apart. And I looked at this and said, there's no way I'm getting back on that bloody thing. <laughs> anyway, so we looked for the pilot and the pilot had gone. So eventually uh, we got the pilot. And the pilot was drinking away there on his fifth beer. <laughs> anyway, so then... Uh, we, we all joined in and there was the, the uh, head of police and the chief of the village and they all, we said we must put in some money and we can get some beers and the beers were of course warm. They were, but anyway, everybody was having a great time and then they got music and the girls came. We had a massive party, but, this, but the, the helicopter was down and out. And in the meantime, it, it hadn't come back to Gabolito, so um, Mobutu was kind of worried about his early helicopter he closed down the airspace of the whole DRC because he thought that we'd taken this thing um, and um, then sent out the army. The, the, the chief of the village had managed to get hold of uh, one of the guys on a little 50cc motorbike to drive back to Gabolito to explain what had happened. By the time he got there, the army had already come in to the village. We got arrested. We were put in jail for three days. Um, because we'd, we'd uh, hijacked his helicopter, etc., etc. Anyway, eventually the whole story came out and we, we got out of jail. He then went to Morocco and, and never came back again. He actually died there. So it oh. was quite a, an interesting exercise in terms of, uh, of, uh, of experience in Central Africa. But if you ask me what, what have I learned, um, I, I'm very interested in um, what the old guys did and how the old guys thought and and, uh, and I'm talking now as, a, as you call me a youngster but you look at all the main deposits in Africa the big T1 tier 1 Kimberlite deposits in Africa that were found and you can start with Williamson in Tanganyika the Madui mine and you look at the guy who found it uh, it's um, uh, John um, John Williamson 
And, and you read his, there's a very interesting book for the youngsters. And I, I would really recommend that. It's called The Diamond Seeker. And it tells you the story about he, how he persevered in a very difficult conditions because he believed that there was something there. He had good reasons to believe that, etc. And, and he had a very tough life to it before he found uh, Madhuri. And it just shows you what sort of character it was. Now, if you look at, at, at a cartoon that was found by Chuck Ficker, and there's a book written, it's called The Barren Lands. It really explains what he was doing. And he lived under very tough conditions, had no money, uh, was scraping together the dollars to, to treat a couple of samples. But he persevered and he believed in something. And the same goes for any of the other big deposits. Orapa was found by Gavin Lamont, who believed in this, the, that the diamonds that were initially found by the Selection <coughs> Trust had, had a source across the, the watershed. And um, he had reasons to, to believe that. But he really pushed that idea. You look at the guy who found Culloden, Tom Culloden. He knew there were some diamonds that were found in, in northeast of Pretoria. And he, he persevered. He made a lot of money initially by making bricks and selling bricks and what have you. So he had the opportunity, but he, he eventually got hold of, of Cullinan by just this tenacity. I look at Alex von Stale and found Venetia. He believed that there was a, a Kimball out there. They did a lot of sampling there. They found indicator minerals, and he didn't give up. And I think this is one lesson I think that I'd like to pass on to the youngsters. It's, it's this tenacity, this believing in something that you believe is there. And, and these books, they're all books written here. They're really a good read. And because of that, we, uh, myself and Eddie Kostrin and Bob Little, we put a book together on the early days of the beers prospecting. And it just gives you some idea of what people were like, what their thinking was, what, what their attitude was towards geology. And the, the uh, great um, passion of finding something and, and, uh, and exploring and, use, and, and not using the tenacity, but being systematic. And that's something I learned at the Beers. I, I saw the Beers as a, as a university. We call it the University of the Beers. There were some fantastic people in the, in the labs and in the West Coast. And they're, they're really top-class scientists and, and uh, doing things the right way and... and, uh, and and, and so, and, and there are people who weren't that lucky. You look at a book called The Glamour of Prospecting by Fred Cornell. He, he had, he was passionate and he was nearly onto it and he just missed the boat. But he was there and he was all, and these are books that I think the youngsters should really think about or uh, read about. And it's great stories and, and great characters. So to me, that's, that's my message. You know, you need passion. Uh, if you don't have passion for the job, you should go and become a salesman for whatever. You need to be innovative. <laughs> things, things, people say you must do it this way, but they, they're all, we don't know exactly how everything works yet. And uh, So you've got to be innovative and you've got to be systematic. So one thing I learned at the beers is you can do, you find something and you run a, a quick mag, a mag line over it. A mag line tells you nothing. You have to be, you have to do a a grid over it to get a proper idea of what, where you want to drill, etc. So you've got to be systematic. So the, those are the things I think we we got to pass on to the youngsters. They and and these books are really very interesting to read. They're not technical, but they tell you what what uh, 
what passion is about for exploration. Absolutely, Mike. Yeah, no, very definitely. Spags, do you want to pick up on that, on some of the, the lessons that, that you've learned yes. over the years and that you'd like to pass well, on? Well, firstly, I'd just like to expand on that. Uh, you know, we, as geologists in Africa, we tend to have our blinkers on on African geology and their discoveries. And I came across a paper on the first discovery of the Russian Kimberlite, which was very intriguing. You know, the... Russians only entered the diamonded arena way later than Africa. It was only in the 1950s that they actually entered the diamond arena. I mean, already by then, South Africa, I mean, was producing heaps of diamonds in 1914. In the early 1900s, Namibia was producing and even Congo was producing diamonds. But, and you'll be happy to hear this, Tanya, the very first kimberlite was actually found by two women. Larissa Papagayeva. Larissa and, uh, yeah, I can never, I thought, I thought my surname was bad, but when I saw that one, I thought I was neither Papagayeva. And it was Natilia. Yeah. What was so amazing for me was the environment in which it all took place. Obviously, Russia did not want to collaborate or communicate with the West. And if you're caught doing that, that was seen as being very naughty. <laughs> and also, they, they did not have the knowledge that the geologists in South Africa had. So these two women went out there, devised their sort of own sampling program, and through, as Mike says, through tenacity, perseverance, and, I mean, the conditions they worked in. Gosh, I mean, we think... You know, our conditions are harsh, but theirs are just as harsh in Siberia. And then having discovered probably the Zonista pipe, which led to all the discoveries. Sadly, they weren't honored for the discovery in the early years, which someone else took that. But only in the 1970s were they ever honored for such a discovery. But there, as Mike says, which I fully agree with, there is no shortcuts there's no quick fixes in, in exploration for diamonds. They can lead you down the wrong and the most expensive path. So you have to do it systematically. It's all about boots on the ground. Obviously, today, we have the technology that seems to help us to move things quicker along. But we know the old adage, you put in rubbish, you're going to get out rubbish. So you've got to make sure your data is correct. And the only way, and this is what the youngsters of today must understand is that it's all about your data and the way you collect good data as well is boots on the ground i mean you can have the greatest computers the most fascinating software you still got to go onto the ground to check things out and uh, and i fully agree if exploration in the conditions that today which are quite harsh in Central Africa and West Africa. If that's not your cup of tea, then you should rather spend time in a lab or do something else. And it takes a lot of dedication. And um, so, yeah, I, I fully agree. Yeah, uh, thank you very much. John? You know, the, the lads have said it all there in a way, Tanya, you know that only two holes beats on the ground. And I think what's really important, and certainly the lesson that Spags and I got on the West Coast is, we were, we were in a mature environment and uh, we were asked to see what was left at CDM. I mean, this is the biggest placer in the alluvial gem placer in the world for diamonds. And, you know, you look at it and fantastic work had been done before, really good work and everything. 
and you think, well, you know, what can you scratch out of the out of the patch, as it were? And one of the things that really helped us a lot was we uh, we we did some I suppose and remember I was cutting those trenches over New Year and nobody was checking apart what we were up to and that sort of thing. But 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 one of the things that really helped us a lot and it really came from two gentlemen of totally different backgrounds. One was Dick Barker from the uh, the Kimberley area, who never finished school, but Dick had a passion mm. and he had ideas and an inquiring mind. And through him we got to see a lot and he shared his alluvial digging data with us. And that's what Spags is right. The data count. And if you can see it and you can judge it for yourself, ensure that it is correct, it's not false stuff, it makes a huge difference in, in, in interpreting what you should be doing going forward. And Dick gave us that opportunity in his UNAS project down in the, in, the, in the Richtersfeld section of the Lower Orange. And the other person who really um, helped us was Brian Black. He was a professor from Glasgow. And he came, he, he was sent out by De Beers to help on, a, on, a, on an MSc project. And he just took, he took an interest. He, he took an interest in what we were doing and what we were trying to achieve. And he put a scientific rigour into our exploration that we didn't have. So we, we, we had ideas and interests and observations. But bringing that together as the buff that he was in gravel beaches and gravel rivers and that, it was just fantastic years. And you talk about sharing and that, that's what he did. He used to lecture to us every time he came out. And out of that, we, we, we got really up-to-date views on the geology, living in an isolated place, you know, a relatively isolated place. And I think it's that scientific rigour that systematic approach that Mike mentions, and boots on the ground, and you're going to know that, you, that if, you, if you're into looking for things, you're going to, not everything's going to be rosy, that's for sure, and you're going to have tough times, you're going to be sick of that. But if you have that, that, that feel for, for it, man, there's nothing, there's nothing like the, the big field that sits on our, on our island, for that matter. And, and I think that, you know, that, that, it's that type of approach, and, and I think the opportunity to share the stories that you've given us tonight, Safisa, is great, you know. There's a lot of good out there, and one of the things that I must say Mike is extremely good at, and that is publishing and getting the stuff out. I'm terrible. I can hardly bloody write a sentence. And, uh, and, those, and what's really important, I think, is to look as we, as we get on. The conferences that we had, the short courses that were run, the diamond short courses, Mike, I think the one that you and John Bristow put together, that, that was excellent because it took the students that were there and it also brought people from industry back. And I've been involved with that now with the, in the Lesotho side where we've um, got some young geos, giving them the opportunity to, to do those courses, but we're giving them an opportunity to study through VITS. And I think that's the whole thing of learning. Brian Black always said to us, if you've got that edge in you, don't get off the learning curve. Mm-hmm. I think that's really what it is. Yeah. As I mentioned before, that Des Pretorius had been one of my first mentors. And I'll never forget something that he said to me in the very beginning, that the best geologists are those that have licked the most rocks. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) The point being, if you wanted to to be a geologist, you had to go out there into the field, you had to see the stuff, you had to walk on it, you had to kick it, and you had to lick Lick it it. from time to time. (laughs) The taste makers. (laughs) As well. The the practicality was you had to be out in the field. You had to be doing. You couldn't learn everything from sitting in in an office reading a book or modeling on a computer. Those things 
came later. You actually had to know what it looked like in the field before you could do anything fancy with it later. And so that's one of the things that I would recommend to any young geologist is take every single opportunity to get out into the field, whether it be in Lichtenberg or in Lukapa. Mm. Go yeah, out there, absolutely. look and see and do. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd just like to add about Brian Black because he became a mentor and um, I was very privileged. I mean, his classroom was, in fact, the field. And he had this most incredible ability to teach. Um, You just learned everything. But he also had another incredible ability, and that was whiskey. (laughs) And um, this this incredible ability went to drinking whiskey out of every type of receptacle that I have actually witnessed. It, um, I remember it was out of a, a glass, as what whiskey is normally drunk out of. Then it went to coffee mugs, and then it went to enamel mugs. And the last, which was quite surprising, he drank whiskey out of a teapot, <laughs> sucking away at the spout, because there was Nothing not enough glasses to go around. <laughs> And then, and then Dick Barker was, as John said, he wasn't educated in the geological field as, as what we are. But he kept such a meticulous records of the diamonds associated with the trap sites of where they would occur. In fact, I think he would put some geologists to shame with regards to that. It was just phenomenal. What was more intriguing about uh, Dick Barker, he had this very small dash hood that followed him (laughs) everywhere in the world. It would be in the aeroplane or it would actually be in the bucky that you were traveling. And this dash hood was just like the Hindenburg, but it was filled with a more noxious gas, (laughs) which this dash hood would gladly would gladly share with everybody. And I have to admit, uh, the field trips with uh, Dick Barker were rather breathtaking. <laughs> and then also the last point that I have to make about uh, the late Dick Barker and, and, and is such a dear man was his writing capabilities. And um, uh, John, you must correct me, uh, please. Um, he started to write it up. I don't know if it was for a master's degree or he wanted to publish all this work. Which one was it, John? Can you remember? Yeah. It was basically a combination. But we, Brian was getting him interested in the master's side. So he was writing up on okay. a pen. That's right. Yeah. So when I was doing my PhD, I would write to him often asking for some ideas and advice and then he would get fired up and he would send me little extracts of his write-ups and i clearly remember this one where he was talking he had a photograph of a scour and a bit of a push bar and all that and he was talking in the caption about this and he wrote there this is so clear like a man walking with a lantern hanging from his appendage to light up the way (laughs) of course appendage was replaced with another word at that time (laughs) oh dear oh dear dick but again what i'm trying to get at as well is that as a youngster and what I've been blessed and been very privileged is to have mentors, John, Mike, Dick, and Brian. And any youngster should latch onto those mentors because they sort of short-circuit things for you as well. They've learned it all. 
Don't go all through the hardships. They will teach you the ways. Get yourself a mentor. Get yourself a mentor and also be a mentor. Yeah. And, that's and one be of the a things mentor, absolutely. That yes. I appreciate about everybody and around this. The bus this. is coming. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> everybody around this table, they've all given of their, their time and their experience, sometimes as a formal mentor and sometimes just to poor little students who are, are wandering around looking at stuff that they have no idea what it's all about. And so I'd like to, from my side, thank you all very much. But as Safisa says, there will be a bus coming along fairly soon yeah. with your name on it. Yeah. We, we will get a new batch of mentees yeah. in, in July. Mm -hmm. And I'll keep your email addresses. <laughs> well, as, as long as the bus arrives with a whole a bunch of beer and wine, we, we might have <laughs> <laughs> It's a bus. <laughs> is, is there any other kind of bus? <laughs> Thank you very much, Tanya. Thank All you, right. yeah, yeah, look, um, just in closing, you know, um, what, what advice would you give a newly graduated self? Um, let's start with John. Now, I think make sure you're on top of the new technologies. Yeah, when I didn't come quite through the computer world, so I'm fairly, still pretty illiterate. I would say make sure you have that going for you and then get your, see where, you, well, see where your interest really lies. You know, if it's, if it's more mineralogical, tag on to somebody who can help you with that. If you're more into exploration, go that route. Look for, look for an area in geology in the rocks that turns you on. Well, think, you, th you think it turns you on and go and test it first. And then see what that leads you to. As Bag says, it leads you on, you know. And I think that's really what it does. It does. It leads you on. While I'm still on you, John, uh, and then what would you do differently if you could? Ish. After all your, yeah, over 40, yeah. <laughs> They're the two lads that'll beat me with a shambok. <laughs> Learn to write properly and quickly. All <laughs> <laughs> right. Let, let, let me. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. Let me go over to, to, to the young man, uh, Mike. Um, I mean, what would you tell a newly graduated self? And uh, if you could, what would you do differently? Yeah, I think so. I, I, John has said it all. I mean, you have to have a passion for what you want to do. If you don't like geology, don't, don't do it. Go and become something else. And then if you go that route, yeah, these days you, you have to be computer literate. And I think a lot of youngsters are actually very much more down the line than we were. I'm still trying to catch up with trying to learn something about uh, GIS. But I think the youngsters would have a much more easier route to go that. But it's still, as Tanya said, it's still important to go. If you, if you go that route, you've got to, try, in your early years, spend as much time as you can in the field, if that's yep. your direction. Because if you don't, you've got to lose out later on. And it's those guys who have really seen these rocks. And you don't have to understand them initially. You've seen them. And you see them again somewhere else, and then the, you know you'll start to understand those things. So, yeah, th I think those are those are the things that that uh, you, passion is one thing, and yeah. uh, and and spend time time in the field. <clears throat> I just I just wanted to quickly say something about John's award. He got the Oliver Davies Award, as you mentioned. Yeah. I was happy to be there at his award, and he got it very well. Uh, I think it's well deserved. It was a quite an interesting story because it happened at a dinner. At uh, It was a PE, and the mayor of PE and his wife were there. And John was standing there, and he was asked to give a thank you speech, which he did. And he knew Oliver Davies. And he, 
still went to the front and he stood up and I was not facing, I was facing the other way. But I saw everybody's jaws dropping because John had dropped his pants and he pulled up his <laughs> underpants right over his shirt and he said, this is how Oliver Davies walked around and gave his thank you speech. So I will never forget this. It was a wonderful recipient of a, of a well-deserved award. But that's the award he deserved because he'd spent so much time in the field. He understood the field conditions. And I think that's really what it's about. No, thanks. Uh, thanks, Mike. And thanks for reminding me about the awards um, and, and bringing that back. And uh, as you emphasized, it's uh, boots on the ground um, that are quite quite important. Before I move on, on the tenacity, I mean, um, you know, in terms of diamonds, there's, there's the whole catchphrase, diamonds are forever, now real is rates, slightly modified. Uh, are diamonds forever? Uh, a parting point from you, Mike? Yeah, I think I think there is still a, a strong uh, demand for uh, natural diamonds, and I think that that uh, will continue in the future. There is also a, a room for um, lab-grown diamonds, um, but I think it, it's it's something that will balance out, and I think that the natural diamonds will still continue for a long time to come, uh, particularly now with uh, with very nice-looking diamonds, type twos and and coloured diamonds and so on. I think. Uh, people still like the natural uh, diamonds, yeah. and of course, there are a lot of people who would be happy to to get a, the the, um, the lab grown diamonds. So I think there is a balance. I'm just going to to trip in here. You're all gentlemen sitting around here. Which one of you is going to be brave enough to go to your wife or girlfriend and say, "Darling, I love you enough to give you an imitation <laughs> diamond"? <laughs> Well, that's a very interesting point, actually, because there are three, a, a man in his life has got three times when he gives, uh, buys a diamond. The first diamond he buys is for his wife when they get engaged. The second diamond, which is slightly bigger, is for his mistress. And the third diamond is the biggest and most beautiful diamond he will ever buy, and that's for his wife when she finds out about the mistress. <laughs> And it better not be a fake diamond. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Real is Ray and Pink Panther. Anyway. I would just rather buy her a Land Cruiser so that I can also drive. <laughs> oh, that, that's, 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 yeah. yeah. That's being resourceful there, Spags. <laughs> that's brilliant. Any, any further things uh, you want to add? What would you do differently, um, you know? As Mike and John have said it well, and but there's one thing that I would suggest for a youngster who gets involved in exploration is to dabble in some production geology as well. Yeah. That actually makes a good mix. You know, I've always tended to run away from production geology in the fear of, oh, I'm going to be in a mine. Oh, my gosh. And when I went to NAMDEP, I got involved in it. And then you actually start understanding what are you looking for in exploration and why does the boss ask those questions which you think are really simple and, and dumb in a sense. So double in, pro in production geology, it actually is a – blends in pretty well uh, with your exploration experience. And um, and the rest, yeah, as Mike and John say, it's a passion. You need a passion for it. And stick to basics. I mean, 
all the kimberlite, most of the kimberlite mines in the old days were done on basic exploration. Stick to basics. That's it. What would I have I done differently? I don't think I would have done anything differently. I, th I think, I think it's the way I went snakes. forward. Yeah, snakes. Yeah, yeah. You would, you would yeah, have designed yeah, that yeah, snake chart. <laughs> Maybe become a herpetologist. <laughs> yes, and that lesser spotted um, snake that uh, John mentioned. Um, <laughs> right, that, that. I, I might just add, Spags was actually born at Madhuri, yeah? at Williamson. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh wow. So in that, in those genes and blood of his. There was a way to haul him out out from snakes. Eh? Oh, wow. <laughs> he, he had the background <laughs> DNA, as they say. <laughs> um, Tanya, sorry, I, I'm going to um, mention this. So we discussed it a bit earlier uh, on the whole Rayleigh's Ray. There was the whole diamond rush in KZN recently, late last year. <laughs> you made um, some commentary and corrected some people. Some of them actually, funny enough, geologists. Um, <laughs> and correcting them, please give us, shed some light on that, please. And then, yeah, give us some, some of your gems. To me, that whole Ladysmith thing was just ludicrous. The first thing I saw on, on Facebook was a beautiful geoid. You didn't need to go to site. Mm. You didn't need to be a rocket scientist. It, there was a geoid, therefore it was quartz. In, end of discussion. So uh, to, to me, that was a bit, a bit silly, and the the way that it took the powers that be such a long time to get around to it, and the the number of geologists who wrote posts and said, yes, it's interesting, and you could have this theory, and you could develop that, I mean, absolute nonsense. There wasn't ever going to be a diamond coming out of there. And if you needed any any other convincing, just... Bring in a diamond buyer from Joburg and ask him if he would buy it from you. Sorry, Safina, may I just add to that, actually? It was quite an interesting uh, time in the 1950s when uh, a lot of golf courses in South Africa <laughs> were, uh, were quested uh, concentrate from Kimberley, uh, from the mines, to use for their for their fairways, uh, for, for their um, areas where you uh, hit, go for the good for the for the hole, and uh, so there was quite a lot of transport of kimberlitic uh, concentrate that went from Kimberley to Natal, and one of the golf courses was near Ladysmith. And uh, many years later, when the beers started doing regional exploration programs, they started picking up these anomalies around these towns, and, and they're finding all these. And, and it was only then that they gave that we managed to get a list of golf uh, courses that had requested Kimberlite concentrate uh, in a towel that we're able to say, oh, well, that's not a, that's not a Kimberlite, it's a golf course. And, uh, uh, it was quite interesting that, it's, that some people may have thought, well, this, this whole story about Natal with these quartz crystals, there may be a story that because there was, there were some interesting anomalies around that part of the world. <laughs> Talking about anomalies, Mike, please tell the story about the, um, the, the samples that you guys had taken up in Botswana that got stolen, truck that got stolen. Oh, no, those, 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 these were samples in Canada. 
uh, the Canadian, we were doing we were doing sampling of the Kimber lines in Canada using large diameter drilling. And you, you can imagine the cost of that in Canada was enormous because you had to do it in the winter. And then the samples would come out to concert in bags. The bags would be transported. This was the early days. The, the bags were transported by ship to South Africa. They would then be trucked from Durban to Joburg and then trucked again from Joburg to Kimberley. So uh, I was in my office in Centurion on Friday afternoon, and um, the truck was going to leave to take concentrate from one of the Kimberleys in Canada to Kimberley. And I got a phone call and said, well, the, I'm afraid to say that uh, the, uh, the driver has been picked up. He was bound to a tree uh, in, in the West Rand, and his truck has been hijacked. Jeez. So you can imagine the loss of these were drill samples from Canada that have taken lots of money to, to require <laughs> to, uh, to take the Kimberley. So I, I asked around and, and I found uh, Mr. Oppenheim. I said, could we use the chopper to fly around that western part of Joburg and see if we can spot the truck or whatever? We did that. Nothing found. So um, police didn't find anything, da-da-da, etc. It's a long story. Eventually, I decided to take a private detective so this guy came to my office in uh, Centurion. And it wasn't like you see on the TV, these private detectives, which are big <laughs> mancho mans with sun tan and whatever. This was an old guy who was quite overweight and whatever. He said, <laughs> anyway, so I, he went off. And a week later, I got a phone call. He said, no, we've located the truck. So um, it was just outside Pochestrum on a farm. And... Uh, so we all got the police in, and we drove out there, and there was the truck. And um, there was all the bags. That the, Each bag was a sample from a certain drill hole, from a certain level. They'd taken all the bags out and piled it on one heap. <laughs> and um, so then we went confronted the farmer. I said, well, he doesn't know how this truck got into his yard. <laughs> all, the, all the tools of the truck were in his, in his uh, warehouse. They didn't, he didn't understand how this all happened. <laughs> anyway, he, he got nailed. But we, we ended up with all this material that was completely mixed up and had to redrill that whole program. It was, uh, it was quite a setback, actually. Yeah. Is, is that what you're referring to, Tanya? Yes. And d didn't he then tell you that... Uh, D don't worry, we'll we'll fill the uh, the packets again from from the heat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sadly, and it, it had a sad story actually because the guy had committed suicide in the end. Uh, he'd been involved in all sorts of other funny things and so on. So it was a, it was a bit of a sad story. But and so we took all that sample and we put it through our DMSs, hoping to find nothing. So at least then all the samples were negative. But of course, we found some diamonds, and you never know where they. <laughs> so we'll have to, again. <laughs> have to repeat the whole program. Guys, thank thank you all so much. It's been a lovely evening chatting with with you all. I know there are a million other stories, mm -hmm. um, but uh, we will get to those on a another time with lots of red wine again. Hopefully, we'll be able to get together in person next mm -hmm. time and do this. So again, from us at the, at the GSSA, thanks to Safiso for, for hosting this and John for, for being in studio and especially to Mike and Spags and dialing in from Cape Town. And yourself, Tanya, as the co-host. Yeah, thank you. Well thanks, done. Tanya. Yes, thank you, Tanya. Thanks, yeah. guys. See you all again thank on you. another prospect all. somewhere. All right. Cheers, young men. 
and <laughs> nice to see you all as well. Bye bye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll meet in person. <laughs> no violence though. <laughs> Ciao. <laughs> You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.